welcome to Swarthmore Presbyterian Church's podcast. This is your host, Alex Evangelista. We are delighted you are here, and don't forget to like, subscribe, and share our podcast. Thank you for tuning in to this special episode of our anti-racism lecture series titled, An Anti-Racism Faith. You are now listening to our capstone speaker, Reverend Dr. Claudio Cravales, who speaks on anti-racism faith and worship. All right. Can everybody hear me okay? Can't tell. Yes, you can. Perfect. Uh, It is so good to see your faces. Thank you so much for being here this afternoon uh, on this weekend. And it's a special weekend for us here as our anniversary Sunday. and as we are on the cusp of Advent. So um, we are so excited to be um, have this opportunity to finish off our wonderful series that we've had over this fall, the anti, Anti-Racist Faith. Um, we have been um, able to explore how we understand uh, scripture uh, in uh, using uh, an anti-racist lens and understanding. Um, Dr. Barreto spoke to us about how um, scripture widens the welcome uh, and expands those who are, God's always expanding those uh, who are in community. Um, And then last month we had an opportunity learned from Dr. William Yu, who helped us think about Presbyterian history uh, and denominational history uh, and anti-racism. And and so now we are uh, here with Dr. Claudio Carvales, uh, who is going to bring us home a little bit. So we've talked about scripture, um, thinking it's Uh, sitting ourselves, grounding ourselves in the word. Uh, We've talked about history and church, and now we come to that practice, that that practice of our life together that is uh, central and core to our life together of worship. Um, And so I am delighted that we get to uh, welcome you, Claudio. Um, I will be brief in my welcome, um, but Dr. Cavales is um, uh, an author. He is an activist. He's an ecologist. Um, He is um, many things, and he is here with us to think about anti-racism in the context of our worship and liturgy. Dr. Colas is from Brazil, and he was recently in Brazil seeing family, which is wonderful. Um, He is the associate professor uh, for worship and liturgy, is that right? At Union Union Theological Seminary in New York. I have had the distinct pleasure many years ago of being at a workshop with Dr. Cavales, um, that, and I still use um, much of what I learned in that workshop, and so I'm really excited to pick up even more, uh, more skills and learnings here. So we are so glad to have you, and we're so excited to know what you will bring to us today. Thank you. Welcome. Uh, so I was saying that I, uh, I've been a pastor for 10 years myself, five years in the United States and five years here, uh, five years in Brazil and five years in Massachusetts. It was actually the Presbyterian of Southern New England, where I'm a, still a member of, uh, that uh, brought me here to work with um, immigrant, a immigrant community in Massachusetts next to... Um, 
very close to Rhode Island in Fall River near New Bedford and the whaling city there. So there are a lot of, of Portuguese-speaking people from the Azores and also other um, Spanish-speaking as well. And so I, I ended up starting a church there. And, and then after that, I went to Union to do my, my PhD. But I mean, that, all is, that is to say that, that I, everything that I write has to do with the... Uh, I mean, because the church gave me everything, right? from my first toy to my food, the church raised me. I, I did live the African proverb who says it, it takes a village to, to, ra to raise a, a child, to raise a child. And, and so I, I, I did feel that with my church. So I always believe that the church is, is a place of transformation, of, of warmth, of healing. Very difficult, <laughs> but a necessary place. And, and in a community that is, in our time, I think, is harder and harder to sustain uh, because there's more of the individual sense of being and not wanting to be annoyed. And I think to be a church day is a counter uh, act in our society. But... Um, Anyways, just to say that I love to be in church with, with, with people and being in, in fellowship halls and, and, and with people who are wrestling with faith. And, and that what actually feeds my writing, my teaching, and so on and so forth. By the way, I love your, uh, your page uh, on your website, the uh, Resolve Against Racism. It's very well done, very good. I think it's a wonderful sign. Uh, that we clearly see uh, where you stand. So let's talk then about, uh, or I'm going to give some things and then we can go into conversation. Um, but when we talk about racism in worship, what are we talking about? What is it? Why, why, why this, to even bother with this connection, right? And so I, I love that you were thinking about worship and, and, and racism because it's, it's either something that people never think or don't even know to put those two words together. And, and why this is so important? Because I believe the church, it is, the, the worship is at the heart of who we are. Actually, we do everything else because we gather to worship. That's the main thing we do. We do nursery because we worship. We do mission because we worship. We do education because we worship. Right? Everything is grounded in, in, in worship. And if you look at communities that are bound to, uh, to the earth, ritual is what creates culture. It's what creates uh, the beliefs and the ways of living. And it, it seems that in seminaries and even in the church, you, you have to first in order to have church. That's how we do with our, uh, uh, with our new members, right? You, you have to learn before we, you can pray or participate in, in the sacraments and so on and so forth. But, but the gathering is what forms us. 
Right? And so that's why it's so important what we do at worship and what we don't do. So remember in 2015 um, in Baltimore, remember when Freddie Gray, this 25-year-old black man was shot and there was this riots and fire and CVS on fire and all of that and how the media turned everything immediately against the black people and forget to consider it was always a but well yeah the, the police did but what really look they're doing right and i remember wrestling it with my my students i was teaching at mccormick in chicago at that time and and it was hard to turn our ways of understanding that event Anyways, that was, I think it happened on a Friday, if I'm not wrong. And on Sunday, I was in church here in Pennsylvania. And the worship happened, and there was not a single word about it. The country was on fire, and there was no word about it. Silence. And if you keep looking at the events that keep happening, it's almost the same thing. Just when George Floyd died in Minneapolis, just this, this year, I was at another church, and I was waiting. What are we going to do? Nothing. There was very large like universal prayer that we could put whatever in there, including George Floyd, but no words. If I left the first church because they didn't, if I have to leave every church that does not say what happens in racism, there would be no church for me to worship. All that happened recently, very recently against Asian Americans. What do we say in our worship? Remember the caravan of immigrants coming from Central America during um, Trump's presidency? There was this almost 20 or 4,000 people coming from Central America. You go to church, it is as if they don't exist. See, you can say, but, you know, Claudio, we, we are not a newspaper. <laughs> You're not supposed to keep reporting stuff, right? But I think we are just like the New York Times. You know the, the, the saying of the New York Times, the, the, the slogan that they have? Uh, let me say it properly. There you go. All the news that fit to print. Our worship should have the same slogan. We... Pray only the things that fit to be prayed. And why those events do not fit our worship services. So then we have to start. Not from the... Uh, and, I'm, I, and, and, and I hope you, you... There's no accusation to be done, right? This is not a matter of accusing nobody or, or pinpointing individuals. Because we're all together doing this, right? 
So there's no, I, I hope you don't feel attacked when, when, when I'm speaking. It's just about for us to talk and, and, and find this courageous space where we can talk about this thing, right? Um, one thing that, I'm, I'm, that I've been troubled at seminary when we say, oh, let's create a safe space. Well, no, there's no such a thing as a safe space. Because th that's not what, what we want. We want a place where we can, we can find the space where we can be ourselves. So there's a space where we can have the courage to speak. And can have the compassion to be heard. It's so hard these days, isn't it? Because we are living in a, in, in a society. And, and, you know, I'm, I'm from Brazil. I just came from Brazil to see my nine-year-old mother. And right there as it is here and seems to be so many places we are organized in an adversarial way so I'm, I'm i'm talking to you if you don't talk what i want you to talk instead of just saying oh let's figure out and let's work in 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 a way that we're gonna i'm gonna fight for what i believe we're gonna fight for what you believe and let we, we'll have to keep on going But I have to destroy you, and I have to kill you, otherwise you're going to kill me. So there is no space, right? And then, um, and then we go from that part to the other part, which is, well, everybody has uh, the right to say whatever they want, because there's democracy. And that is the relativization of democracy, which is very dangerous as well. We cannot say whatever we believe. Because if I'm saying, put any of you in danger, I cannot say it. Because if your life is at risk, I cannot say it. Because you might run the risk of losing your life. See, see how, this is complex, right? It's very complex. And in the midst of it, at the heart of our thing is, 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 is racism. And we are heirs of ideas and forms of, of, of being. Because ideas never come as an abstract thing. Ideas have material structures have historical grounding that organize the space around the idea. One simple example, since you're going to talk about worship, we can give many other examples. We can talk about votes and suppression of votes and who can vote, right? That's an idea that turns into pol politics, that turns into law, that turns into uh, 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 oppression. But let's stay uh, here in church. The way we have our sanctuary, I, I, I don't know. So the good thing about I, I I haven't looked much at it because I wanted to be free to say whatever I want to say. But and, and and again, I'm not accusing anything. Okay, not not. I'm just I'm just doing here what I do with my students. The shape of our worship. Why do we have the shape of pews? And depending on the church, I don't know which one you have. The pulpit here. The table here or the pulpit here? Is, that, is there any harm in it? No. What I'm saying is that 
it comes from a theological idea. Why? Because there's something that the center of a space, what you have at the center is the most important thing, right? That's why you have the cross up. So why do we have this pointing where? To God, to sky, right? But why do you have the table here at the center and the pulpit there? Or you have the pulpit at the center? It's a theological idea. It's, um, and why do you call it a table or an altar? We Presbyterians don't call it an altar. We call it a table. Right? Because it's a theological idea of how we understand the sacrament of the Lord's table. And, and, what, and it is at the center. The preaching at the center is more um, a, a Baptist, understand, which the preaching is at the heart of the worship. And sacraments are not sacraments. It's different. It's called uh, ordinances. Differences of ideas. But to the point that Try to get, if your pulpit is there and say, you know, Reformed people might have it there. No. No way. Don't mess up with that place. Especially the altar. Right? Don't mess up with that. It is an idea that becomes a part of our body, that becomes a part of our ordering the world. And if you... If everything is falling apart, at least here we keep it the same. That's why it's so hard to create new things. Because we think that this is the tradition. But you know how long tradition uh, 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 lives? It, it, <laughs> if you look at every, every bulletin of the church, and you say, no, you've always done this way. Just look at your bulletin. And you see how you've changed all along, <laughs> you've never been the same. Because once you keep tradition the same, you kill it. Tradition is only possible if it is betrayed. Because if it is reorganized for the people that are coming. And that's when you pass it on. And the new generations will do what they, they, they understand according to their lives. But I mean, I'm, I'm riffing off a little bit here from what I'm, I'm supposed to say. But I tell my students, tell, show me your worship and I will tell you who you are. If I watch one of your services, I'll, I'll tell you what you believe, how you understand of communion, of gathering, where is your place in the world, what's your politics. Oh no, my past doesn't talk about politics. Mm -hmm. Because we, because we are not only what I speak. When you decide, when you leave here and you're going to say well, uh, what, what position I have, you're going to both consider what I said, but also what I didn't say. Oh, how come he, took, he talked about tradition but didn't mention this? Oh, he must be that. <laughs> right? Worship, it's not only what we say, but what we don't say. It's what we do, but also we, what we don't do. 
So we can say, it's hard to say that every church is racist. Even though Martin Luther King said that, not me, right? You remember that? When he said that the, uh, the most, what is that? The, uh, the most segregated hour in the United States is, is Sunday morning. And why did he say that? Why do you think? Why did Martin Luther King say that? Why would, would we call the worship a segregated hour? That's, there you go. Unpack that for me. How true? Why is it true? Where people live. Precisely. We're going to get that. What's that? How they choose to group. That's right. Because, friends, a church is a gathering of people, but a gathering of people that look like the same. You all participate in a certain class. Two poor won't come here. Or the other way around. Because we are segregated in groups, right? But, so class is one part of it. Race is another. And why? Just look at the red lining that was created here. Right? That Margaret said. And we are part of it. Oh, but we didn't know. Yeah, sure. But that does not make us less responsible for it. In some way or not. Like, or if we talk about, if you want to be radical, right? And talk about property. Every single private property in the United States is a stolen land. Every single property. My house, your house, this church, used to be somebody else. Well, then, what is left for us? <laughs> what is left for us is to wrestle with it. To, to, to make it a part of our way of thinking, our way of believing, and our way of positioning ourselves in the world. How does this church positions itself in the world? We are segregated because our churches are mostly white. And we grew up in a church, or you grew up in a church, and I grew up in, 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 in Brazil. That is a result of its own history. So when we look at what made us be who we are, there's several things for us to consider, right? There's colonialism. There is racism in all its forms, starting from the ways in which it came from Europe and the creation of the notion of race. And how the uh, European thinkers never said a single word in their work about the slavery, the shipment, the Atlantic uh, uh, racism in their work. Just read Kant, Descartes, or uh, Hegel. And how this was absent. And not only that, how 
Protestantism used plantations to establish its form of worshiping. Many churches, right? And, and, and how we are the results of that notion of, of domination, the notion of owning, the notion of, of having to pass on to my people. And so when, when we do that, we start to understand ourselves as only be understood with those whom I am with and look like. And I grew up in a, in a Christianity that was completely racist as well. How come? No black people in my church either. Very few, one or two. And there was this African uh, religion, the African religions in Brazil called Candomblé, Umbanda, Kimbanda, which was a very different thing because the, um, when the uh, African people came to to Brazil, which was the largest uh, slavery uh, holder in, in the Americas. It was very different, their interactions with, with, with the, the um, Catholic Church than it was here. Uh, Protestantism crushed most of the African religions. Catholicism worked in a much, there was much more wiggle room for them to survive. Protestantism is merciless. In that regard, you know, the, because we are uh, at the heart of Protestantism is the fear of uh, uh, when you worship another god, oh. idolatry. We are merciless. We cannot deal with it, right? So, I, what Christianity in Brazil did to me was to compound uh, those religions which was idolatry it was more than that actually it was the place of the devil with black people when you put this together those religions become the work of the devil and who are they all of them black people but we didn't go after them as black people Protestants went after them, and Catholics as well, as African religions. So for me, I had to go into an, a form of unlearning in order to, uh, to, uh, to lose that fear that I had of black people in black uh, uh, religions. And I, I, and I wrote about it. I, I had to go. I had to be a part of it. I had to sleep there. I had to learn how they, they, they worship. I had to be a part of it in order for my body to unlearn. And talking about practical things, we need to unlearn something. 
and that is deep down in our body. No things that, that, that live here. Not only here. I remember when I was there in, in, in Bahia, 95% of black people, and I, 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 I was translating for a group of union students who, who were there to visit those African religion places. And, you know, at that point, I thought it was so liberal. So it's fine. I can go inside. I don't have that anymore. I, you know, I'm, I'm open now. So good. No more idolatry. No more the devil. I'm free from it. Okay. We go. And the van, the, the van comes. 16 students inside plus uh, Professor Emily Towns. And, and so everybody's inside. I shut the door. And in the front, there was the driver. Uh, uh, a Methodist pastor who lived there, but she had double belonging. You know what double belonging is? You belong to two, two religions, and you flow well between the two. So she was uh, initiated in, in the candomblé, the African religion, and she was a Methodist pastor. Even though she couldn't say to the Methodists she was that. <coughs> I close the door <coughs> and I go inside and, and here I am trying holding the door. I just need to do this, right? Sit and boom, close. And I'm holding the door and my body doesn't move. I have full conscious consciousness. But I cannot move, literally. And I, and I start to understand what is going on. I cannot move the thing. I just can't think about everything. And then everybody was chatting. And they were like, let's go. Yeah, I said, yeah, let me think about something here. What are you going to do now? And you know, you know, as pastors, you always learn how to tweak and invent something. You know, when pastors don't know what to say, they're going to ask for an extra minute of quiet prayer. Just <laughs> we teach that in seminary. <laughs> so next time. <laughs> <laughs> but I said, oh, let me think. I just let me give me some, give me a minute here. I just have to think something. And I cannot move. Sylvia, the pastor, looks at me. She knows. She grows up as a Protestant just like me. She said, Claudio, you don't need to go inside because we are going to a worship place. Where I have in my entire life said it was the house of the devil. You know, and I believed in, in demons. And I cast out demons in, in, in growing up. So I, those things were like live to me. You're not talking about, you know, liberals talk about that as a metaphor, as a, a, a mental issue and all of that. But never a thing in itself, right? Now, for me, it was real. And, 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 and then she knew, and, and then she said, you don't, need to, you don't need to go. You just stay outside. You don't need to go inside. And I said, what? Yeah, you don't need to go inside. Just stay in the car. You don't need to go. As she talks to me, my body starts to go clack, 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 clack. What's going on? And she says, This is the racism 
that lives in our body. It's not here. Because, you know, to be a union, you have to be a little liberal sometimes. But to, but then this is one part of the unlearning. The other part is in the body where the places that we do not know. And then we speak from without knowing that that thing exists. So when we talk about racism, from what part of your body do you speak from? And you have to be honest. There's fear. There's fear. Why do we need to talk about that? Because it comes to us as a fearful thing. And we do not. And it's fearful. Why? Because it was. It, we were educated with it. It was all over our growing up. But we cannot name it. We cannot say it. We have no, we have no language. And that's why it's better to be quiet. Better not to talk. Because then we are crossing a boundary that we have all tried to keep this boundary for all our lives. And if that grows down, we don't know what's going to happen to us. I have to deal with my own history. And that's not a small thing. I have to go into my own memories. I have to go into that secret place where we all have our stuff. That we cannot let anybody know. That day I learned that racism was not only a matter of an abstract idea. But it was founded in my body for years. And all I could do in my worship, in my prayers, was to pray for their salvation. What do they need to do? I need to unlearn. So I start to, um, how do we change? First, we get the consciousness that we need to change. It's a conversion, my friend. And that's one of the beautiful things about Christianity. It's all about conversions. Time and again. I know. Presbyterians don't do altar call. I know. And I'm not going to do one. Don't, don't worry. Don't worry. But we, I mean, every Sunday should be an altar call. Where we leave the church saying, my goodness, can I even do this? Can I even follow this Jesus? Because, you know, to follow Jesus is the most difficult thing. I tell my students that my hope is one day become a Christian. It's too hard. We made it easy. We, we, we sugarcoated everything. We turned the harsh sayings of Jesus into platitudes. And we do what we can. And yes. <laughs> but it's way more than that. So there is a, a, an issue to be converted all the time. And one of my conversions were, was around racism. 
The same way that another conversion. So I, I, I have a thousand conversions to tell you. I can tell you about my conversion from being so afraid of, of gays and homosexuals, but that is another day we can talk about. I could tell you how I was converted from uh, um, being a, a patriarchal man who, who were thought to be uh, a patriarchal man and, and, and break myself into it. I could tell you how I never thought about the, um, uh, about the earth and how that's my recent uh, conversion that I was converted a few years ago with Robin Kimmerer. And in all of this conversion, it's not a one-time thing that you can just walk away and say, okay, I'm not there anymore. Ha! I wish! As a man, if I don't break myself down all the time, I'm going to punish my wife and teach my kids the way of a, of, a, of a male. So I have to, how do I break that? I have to read. I have to engage. I have to be a part. I have to be affected by the ways of the women. Otherwise, I remember this one class I, I, I took at Union. That it was a class that Professor Dolores Williams, who died, who one of the writers of uh, womanist theology, and Professor Janet Walton. It was just a, uh, um, it was women and worship, only for women. And I begged, begged them to be a part of But why do you want to do it? Because I need to learn. It was the most difficult class of my life. For the first time in my life, I was in a room only with women. I understood patriarchy much better because patriarchy is fearfulness that must have violence to control that fearfulness. So I had to understand myself with them because, you know, all bright, brilliant women, you don't want to mess up next to that woman, those women. You don't. I remember I had to do a worship uh, service. We, we were reading novels and doing rituals out of the novels. So I was doing rituals with these two other women for the whole class. It was about 20, 20 women. I was the only male there. And, and I remember one of these rituals, I had to do the final prayer. And I wrote it as I have never prepared anything that well in my life. And why? Fear. What if I say something wrong to them? They are going to say it to me because they are not afraid. Yeah. So I sent that prayer, I don't know, to five or six women. Can you please read it for me? Anything wrong? Is the comma okay? That's what, this is what men don't understand when women are in male-dominated uh, places. Because we take for granted that the space is a male space. And you all women can tell us stories and we need to hear the stories that you have to go through. Up to this day. When pastors, women pastors are, are, are interviewed and asked, are you pregnant? Are you going to be pregnant?
or questions that men would never uh, um, uh, be asked. Salaries. The salaries of women is much lower than, than, than males everywhere. So there's a structure that I was thrown into it to sustain and support as a male. And I hope that you understand that while I'm talking about that, I'm talking about racism at the same time. Same patterns, same structures. And I'm going to get there. When I said my prayer at the end, there was the conversation. So what happened, my teachers, what happened? Let's talk. And Laura, at the end, she said, that's, that was an... It was a good ritual, ta -da -da, ta -da -da, but I didn't like Claudia's prayer. My fear came to being. What, Laura? Why not? I asked. Oh, no, I just didn't. <laughs> didn't want to hear it. Laura, I prepared with all my heart. Uh, look, can you read it again? <laughs> To make sure that you, you heard it well. <laughs> and she said, as an, as an African-American woman, Laura, never forget. She transformed my life. She said, Claudia, I don't care what you said. You should have not said it. <laughs> what? You can tell how rude she was. No. It took me then from that day till now to understand that I'm not supposed to talk all the time. That I don't have that right. I have to listen. And if I want to break the patriarchy within me, I have to listen. So I start reading all the women that I could. And my PhD, my students, if they don't have women in their papers, I just <laughs> crap. Engage with women, or what you're saying is just regurgitating your patriarchal systems. Same thing with black people. I started to go to black churches. I started to understand, try to understand, read the story, read black authors. Engage with them. Teach with them. Hear their stories. Don't only, not only engage the uh, black culture of good black music. But listen to the stories of slavery. Listen to the stories of plantations. Listen to the stories of Jim Crow. And listen to the people who are in jail. What are jails these days, my friends, if not the ongoing form of contemporary plantation? And if, if we are not against, let me tell you this clearly, if you're not against jails, don't even bother do anything with race and worship. Don't even bother. Just move on. Don't pretend. Because that's the dangerous thing. I, I, I hope you don't get, like, by, by adding a prayer, you're nice, nice. Now you check your difference box. And look how we are. 
We have a prayer now uh, against racism. The worship, you bring what is most important to you, right? We, the sacrament, the prayers, the hymn, the being together, the preaching. It's the most important things for us. If you bring issues of race, that means that you are called to be transformed. You are called to conversion. If you're not ready to put away jail systems, then put a hold in your worship and, 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 and race. There's a book, um, so terrible names, I forgot to put in my thing, which is this black author talking about, he, he is from Louisiana and he's talking about how his street was named after a slaveholder. And he goes around, I can send you, it would be great if you all uh, read it together. And he goes around his city, uh, New Orleans. And he starts to name all of the names of uh, white supremacists. And his city is packed with them. Those things are in our in our neighborhoods, and we don't know. It's a way of paying attention and being transformed. Worship is about paying attention. Paying attention to God's love time and again. But see, Calvin, uh, St. Augustine asked this question, what do I love when I love my God? Confessions chapter 10. What do I love when I love my God? What do you love when you love, when you cannot love the immigrants? What do you not love when you cannot love the black people? What you do not love when you love, when you do not love women? What do you love when you do not love Asian Americans? What do you not love when you do not love the, the um, natives, the indigenous. We call worship a um, common worship, right? Common to whom? Who has access to what we call common? Those black folks here would say that this is common. Our worship book, it was done by wonderful people. The, the new worship book, I, I, I was invited to be a part of it, and these fantastic people of the, of the Presbyterian Church. I love them all. But mostly people who have one kind of experience. If you live in a, in a, in, 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 in a white community, it's one kind of experience. If you live in an immigrant community where your pastor... Uh, comes from it's a different ball game different food different sounds different loudness different organizations different ways of, of relating to family different very different 
But he must be quiet. Because it's off of the center. How do we start to engage each other? It's just a matter of willing to be affected. I am willing to be affected by the ways of my pastors. By the way of each other. The same way that you raise a prayer and I am affected by your prayer. And now you become a part of me. It's the same way of engaging other people. Being fully, able to be fully affected by somebody else. And if you're affected, to bring it into the worship is not a big deal. It's just a, it's just a natural flow. It's not something that, you, that, that we said, Oh, we forgot! <laughs> what about, we forgot to put here something about black people. <laughs> no, it starts off. There. So that's uh, what I always say is what Professor James Cohn says. I, I, I hope that our liturgies start where it hurts. Our prayers start where it hurts. So this book here, it was done everywhere and in four places around the globe. And here, I'm, I'm saying this not for you to buy, you didn't buy anything, but just to tell you how I am doing, I'm going to close. I went to four places around the world to listen to people in poor, poor, poor areas. And from there, I, I got a grant. So we, we, get, we went to Asia, to Africa, to the Americas, and to Europe. And we had pastors, church people, activists, um, artists. And we stayed with people for three days. And then we would create prayers. From that experience. Nothing against the book that we have. Because I love the book. But the book is one source. It's not the source. Along with those prayers. We have other prayers. So my hope is that you are going to do the prayers. That you go along with people around here. And you pray with them. Not only for them. But with and with means I'm affected by you and you're affected by me. When I was, um, I married Katie and Katie was a widow uh, when I married her. And I, um, if there's one description of myself, be that I'm a father of three kids because I, I, I adopted my, my, my three kids. And that's the biggest joy of my life. But then I engaged as a Latino man into a white family. And I could understand that a little bit more. I can see it. And talking to her, I said, why we don't have anything in your church about racism? And ta -da -da -da. <laughs> Not that way, but I asking. And, and to the point that we talked so much that, that she said, we don't, have, we don't have language. We don't know what to say. We are afraid of saying something wrong. So then I wrote a, <laughs> a chapter. Here called praying with black people for darker times. What does it mean? I got um, Martin Luther King letter from Birmingham, and I got snapshots, and then I create prayers, simplest prayers, 
for us to develop vocabulary. So you know what all, all the church should do after George Floyd? Sit down and say, how do we pray? Do you see the connection? Because our world is coming to a point where we cannot breathe. Look at us. George Floyd is just, it's, it's, it's a reality and a metaphor of entire globe. We have not been able to breathe. It's simple, my friends. Do you want to continue existing? Is how do we breathe together? So I could tell you a lot of what to do, and you can use this as your uh, example. But just sit down. There's no need for, for, for uh, uh, books and all of that. Just sit down and say, what's going on around here? What are the, the policies that makes us live the way we do? And even if you don't have nobody here, you don't need to go desperate about like, just like, can some black people come be a member here so that we can be, whoosh, we have it. <laughs> you don't need to. But you can do the homework of your heart, of your family. You want to know about Asian Americans? Just read about them. Read, read novels. Read, go watch something on Netflix. Things like that. Pay attention to what's happening. Why now Biden had to do one something to protect Asian Americans? Why? Well, but oh, they're invisible. Why? Sit down, read, and write a psalm. About immigrants, read about them. Read their story. Why they're coming here. Try to get a notion not of the news. Because the news is always wanting to sustain that form of life. If, if, if any news says something, he'll go the other way around. Rewrite the news. You know, Bart used to say that we have the Bible in one hand and the newspaper in the other. Right? That's a very famous thing. Let that newspaper cross you. But don't only uh, uh, go after the newspaper because there are only some news that fit. Go beyond. Go to the ground. Go to where nobody pays attention. The people who are washing your dishes in your restaurants. People who pick up your garbage. Pray for them. Pray with them. That's it. Thank you very much. We have questions? Yeah. Good. Yes, thank you. I, I, I've only been a member of Presbyterian for about eight years. Oh, wow. I definitely feel more than ever, like deep down inside, some of the differences. Yes, yes. More now than even eight years Absolutely. ago. Absolutely. And, um, that's just, I just want to put that out. Yes. Because there was a lot of things that you said that resonated with me because of that. Do you think that the fall in the number of people going to church, pretty much, you know, we hear about it, we read about it, is partly because we are in our heads and not 
really talking about stuff in in an honest way, the way that you're talking. And I'm not talking about this church. No, no, in general, I'm yeah. I'm talking about yeah. all my friends Absolutely. in the country that are, you know, some are going, many are not going. Yeah. Many family members are not going. That's right. Catholic, Presbyterian, you right. name it. Is it. Do you think it's because we've gotten so into the habits and rituals that they're falling short? That there's something there's some disconnect. Mm. I'm curious about yeah. that. Yeah. Your name? Susan. Susan, thank you so much, Susan. And I'm glad you mentioned that because the more we if we are one religion, the more we go into the other, the more acute we feel what we had growing up with. The more acute it is. And the more trouble it becomes. It doesn't become easier, it becomes more complex and difficult, right? Yes. Yes, and so you now live in two worlds where you say, "No, this is not. I need this, and but not this, but I need that." So you are you 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 become a a a a creature that lives in the borderland. So own that, own that borderland and that contradiction as part of yourself. I think that will help you. In terms of why we are, I, I think there's so 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 many so many reasons for that. I I am reminded of. Um, of this Italian writer, um, Gramsci, that once said that we are living in a time where the uh, old ghosts have not left and the new ones have not fully arrived. I think we are in this place that we don't know. And, and, and at, after the... Um, the uh, the pandemic we know much less much less and the people who used to come to church are not coming i mean before the church grew because no then worship online usually that's what i hear so many more people but now coming to church not everybody's coming back we don't know what to do and i think there's several reasons uh and, and i'll just mention quickly some i think one is Is, is, is what I said. We live in a, in a liberal country, in a, in a way that liberal in terms of liberalism, in terms of your own choice, right? And, and, and so it grows on you the fact that you own your own life and nobody can say a thing about you. And it's just like in church, people complain. Remember this one church, that one person uh, complained to me. You cannot tell me what to do. So, well, but then just stay home. <laughs> That's what we do here, actually. That's all we do. <laughs> to tell each other, each other, what to do. <laughs> we challenge each other's ways of doing things. If you cannot hear that, just, yeah. Go have your Starbucks in Sunday morning. So I think that's one part of that. The second is that the less and less we are prone to community gatherings. Because, and this is because of the economic system that says we have been indoctrinated by this capitalism who says um, the, uh, you know, the, 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 the survival of the fittest, that means that you are on your own. If you don't fight and get what you want, it's your problem. It has nothing to do with society. It's on you. And that creates a sense that I have no, nobody near me. Church used to be a place where we can lean on each other. 
But church now is a liberating uh, um, enterprise. Because if you lose your house and if you cannot pay, you are on your own. Is the church going to give you another house? No, because no church will do that. Because you're responsible for yourself. And very soon after you stop paying the, 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 your, your, your mortgage, you have to figure out where to go. Kids, parents, grandparents, friends, street. And all we will say is, oh, I'm so sorry. Isn't that sad? And, and, and I'm not accusing you. But this is the structure of church. It's the same thing. It's not about this church. It's about church in general. We are responsible for ourselves. I'm not, I'm not responsible to pay your bills. But this is very different for, 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 for me because then yeah, I'm always reminded that of, of, of God's uh, uh, question to, was that Esau? Where is your brother? No. Was it? Cain. Cain. Cain, where is your brother? Am I, where is Susan? Am I Susan's keeper? If she messes up with her life, what can I do? What's her own choice? She didn't know what to do with her money. What can I do? It's the same thing when we talk about students' debt. Why don't we erase all the debt? It's your business. I mean, you, you choose to mess up with your life. When I keep talking about this in this church, I think uh, the, uh, the office never invites me to, to speak about any, any anymore because I always repeat the same thing, you know, like this broken record about, about uh, salary, pastor salary. Why don't all pastors have the same salary? Why? Because then if you want to, to come to this church, you come because you love this ministry. But if you want to go to a rural church, you go because it's a ministry. But no, you know what's vocation for us Christians today? I'm going to tell you what vocation is. Oh, God is sending me. The... No, no. The, your vocation is give me your, uh, how do you call it? Your package. But because, tell me, if you got two packages, one is $80,000 and the other one is twenty five. dollars tell me what's your vocation. Where do you feel the spirit leading you? It's no brainer. And no, you should go to the 80, but don't say it's vocation. It's not. And we had, I have students of mine who have three churches, four churches, to make 70% of a full salary. And a student of mine came to me the other day and said, a Presbyterian came to me and said, oh, I had this church who offered me 19 hours and a half. And I had no idea. So what, what? Why? That's it. Because if you go into 20 hours, it adds benefit. I said, why is this church even open? They should go to hell. How can dare... Bring a pastor and do not pay the, the benefits. And go, this is vicious. But we don't see it as vicious. We see it as the business. That's how we are. That's what we can do. 
And I don't know, friends, I, I am off in this because I, I was a pastor in Brazil in a congregation that couldn't, like, second month in my turn there. It was a very poor church. They couldn't pay my salary. Second month. <laughs> the, um, the treasurer came to me and started talking about the sky, soccer, the street. And I said, Gumerin, what's going on? He said, we cannot pay you. I'm not going to do <laughs> You know what they did? So everybody poor. Everybody. I said, well, let's keep going. Every Sunday, I would leave. I could barely. It was three buses and one uh, train. <laughs> it was far. I would leave with bags of food. That would get me through two weeks. And that, that treasure would put $5 in my pocket for all of the, uh, of the train and the buses. That's how they took care of me. Church is not about budget, but it's about wanting to be together. I think this is one thing, that we that we still into this liberal mode. I mean, if we go to, and besides, what we need church for? Why most poor churches are packed? If you don't, if you're sick, where do you go? You don't go to the dog, you go to the church. If you have something in your head that you feel like there's something there and you're depressed, but you don't know what it is, where do you go? You go to church. If you need money to pay your rent, where do you go? Banks will not give you money. You go to church. That's why church was vital. It's like why black churches were so important for the black people. Because outside they would hear, you are nobody. Inside of the church, they will hear their pastors and their songs saying, you are worthy. You are somebody. I think there's this thing of connecting with each other in ways that, and I mean, it's Bob. I cannot live without Bob. Like, because worship, it can only be done with people. I cannot do it by myself. Because church, church and worship in the Christian tradition is only a gathering of a collective people. It's not me. So if Bob doesn't come, I have to go to his house and knock at the door and say, Bob, where are you? If you're not coming, I cannot worship. Get out. Get out of that bed. I got you coffee. Let's go. There's something about you needing each other. Like there is, we lost that one thing, Susan, that, that, that David said, I was glad when they told me, let's go to the house of God. It's not like, oh, it's the worship. It is. I used, when I was six years old, five years old, I used to wake up my mom at five o'clock in the morning on Sunday because I was so excited to go to church. I would knock at the door and say, Mom, time to go to church. He said, Cloud, it's five o'clock. And the worship was 11. <laughs> Calm down. Go back to your seat. I'll, I'll tell you. I'll, I'll, I'll wake you up. 5.15. Mom, is it 10? Let's go! 5.30. 5.45. Six, six, ten. When it was seven thirty, she would let me go. I said, "Just go." I was six years old. 
We cannot do this anymore. Don't trash my mom. It was, it was, I don't know if it was safe or not, but I used to go. And I would go and sit on the steps of the church for three hours waiting for the pastor to arrive. Because I didn't know, I just looked back. I, the only thing I can understand is, is, is David's psalm was in need. There's no better day of my week than being together. It's messy. It's complicated. Bob's going to annoy the hell out of me. You step on my toes. Sometimes I wish Bob would never be in his church. But I cannot live without Bob. And without Bob, I will be lost in the world. See, it is just this, this recognition of that. And we don't have that. It's business. It's other kind of, of relationality. I don't know, Susan. I can keep talking. I just talk too much. Thank you. Thank you, Susan. Thank you, Claudio. Any other questions, friends? I think this mic is working, which is good. Yeah, yeah. Margaret. Margaret, go ahead. Like yeah. The intersection between patriarchy and racism. There are two patriarchy, racism, heterosexuality, uh, whiteness, all of that colonialism they're all structures that that intend to crush a certain kind of people because it is based on a certain kind of power all of them so in order to keep the power you have to unbalance the form of relationality why patriarchy because you need to unlevel the, the place with the woman. Otherwise, they will have the same power that you do. So you have to, to put them down. Because they're too powerful. And because they're too powerful, I have to run the game. And now I can teach better ways for the women to do. But how is that related to racism? It is the ways in which the same structure has to unlevel the white and the black. And sometimes the patriarchy of race can be leveled in the same playing fields across race. You can get patriarchy, the same patriarchy among Latinos. Oh, and I can tell you, my culture is damn machista, as, as Alex knows. It's a hell. It's not like because I am a, a, a Latino man that I'm not a patriarchal man. So I can correlate. So there are levels of, of relationality between heterosexuality, between male, between uh, whiteness. And they all work within the same structure. Rita Segato, this, this, this thinker from Argentina and Brazil, she said that there is a war against women, against children. And that war is to crush all those who can form ways of, of breaking that system of liberalism. Because women are the ones who tend to put families together. They, they weave different things in our society together. While men tend to think in monolithic ways, to departmentalize. And so I need to have everybody departmentalizing everything so I can control you better. 
And when you start to think in correlation, in systematic ways of everything is the same, like indigenous people do, like African people do, like many <clears throat> Asian forms of, of religions do, it's one thing. If you get Buddhism, everything is intertwined, interrelated, interconnected, everything belongs to each other. So the way of, of controlling, it is the, 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 always the, um, how say, the, uh, the slogan of the empire, divide and conquer. Divide and conquer. Pastor. Mm -hmm. And so I think identity politics. It's <clears throat> it's oh you you name me one of the um, the elephants in the room, and it's hard to speak about it. It's very hard because to say we don't need that is to say white supremacy then rules over everything. But we, when we start to engage into so many identities, we explode into atomic groups that we lose all our power. And then, well, I have to gather with those who are Latino, who wears black jacket and scarf, because, you know, he, he has a scarf, he's like me. So as a scarf, we are together. With jacket, I'm sorry, I have to get another, another group. Um, and that breaks us. Daha, now we're together again. Here we go. We are caucus now. But we do, I would say, we do need to sustain the, the, the discourses of identities because they do that for the sake of survival. It's about survival. Perhaps when we get to a different class, it might be a different thing. But when you're in the ground, this course of identity is a way of protecting yourself. It becomes one way of, of protecting uh, uh, yourself. But that has to be a way of engage that language and engage yourself fully within a larger sense. So, for instance, just tell an experience. So for me, as a Latino man, I have to understand my place in the United States as a Latino. But it's hard to be a part of Latino because I'm Brazilian too. And so for some people who speak Spanish, it's hard for me because I'm from Brazil. But I have, that's my niche. Because I can, I can find the sustenance of that in me. But can I speak to all the Latinos? I can't. But I can, but I can at least lean towards them. But I cannot be in my Latino identity only. That's what I'm saying about being affected. I go into the uh, black people and I have to learn 
the ways of the black people, to break my Latino way of being that is harmful to the black people. I have to learn about the Asian people so that I can also break my ways of being Latino and break the stereotypes that I make about Asian people. So it's a way of, of folding back into other identities. It's what um, Gayatri Spivak from Colombia says, this, the um, uh, essentialized strategy, which means, uh, or another name I don't remember, that we have each, each uh, discourse, and we, we have to learn how to live with different discourses. We have to. But not as a way of pulling us apart, but to establish the difference. I will never, as much as I want to learn about women, I will never be a woman. And that, I, I go up to page 7 in this book of 3,000 uh, pages. So I have to know that I can learn up to some. So there's difference that I need to honor and boundaries that I need to honor. But at the same time, I have to keep plowing, moving, is, is that step forward. And, as, and so it's both I step around my group, but I also step forward. Because then in, in a church like that, I, I cannot, I live in a, in a, in, in a white family, I cannot, huh, uh, say that white people are the worst. My three kids are white. See how it changes me. If before I could say that because from my positionality as a Latino, I could have said that I cannot say it anymore. So it is this kind of, of being broken in my own discourse that I have to learn so that the politics of identity don't, do, does not become a thing in itself self-enclosed, is me, 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 but also a way of finding my own sustenance, my own way of, of being protected, and then move towards somebody else. It's like my son. I mean, the, the, the kids know this better. My son, I, I go pick him up at school once. I think he was five or, or six, and, and, and he had learned about race in his school, and so I put him in the car. I said, Dad, are you white? I said, no, I'm not white. Oh, what are you? <laughs> well, I am Latino. And as white as it can be, boy, says, I'm a Latino too. And I love that. Because it's not, it's not the blood, but it's the love. So that's why when I talk about Bob, it's, it's the love. So I'll learn about Bob, about his life, where he has been. But Bob will learn about me, my Latino culture. And then he will appreciate, and I'll appreciate him. And then we can start to find wiggle rooms that is kind to start grow between him and me. Knowing that I'll never understand him completely because he's a mystery, as I am a mystery to myself, imagine to him. But there is a space in which perhaps we can drink some horchata and, and, and do some salsa here. And, 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 and I think that's a, a double movement, just to close. A double movement with going within, but going outside.
I think that's the, the movement. It's so hard. How to do that? Just being together. I mean, finding a space like this. Finding a space and listen to each other. Telling each other stories. So that when I know about, about Susan, then my love for her will just grow. I don't know if it's an impossible <laughs> to, to ask. To yeah, respond. thank you. Thank you. Yeah, we'll take one last one because I, yeah, go ahead, Marilyn. I, and I'm going to repeat it after you say it. Okay, so at the risk of not wanting to offend anyone, um, you started by talking about how churches are silent on so many of these important issues. And I feel that our particular church is perhaps more mixed in feelings about some of these things. And so there's a sense of, perhaps not wanting to affect anymore. Right. How, how do we raise up those issues so that yeah. we can have the conversation that needs to be? Your name is? Marilyn. Yeah, Marilyn. So, so a lot of churches at times are silent in the midst of injustice. Our church to be somewhere in the mixed section. And how do we have those conversations or bring it up? Even if it might offend. Was that, did I phrase that right? I think <clears throat> you're. Tell me your name again. Sorry, Marilyn. 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 I think you're getting to the uh, to the nitty gritty of it. You're you're naming it, and I love how you start at the risk of, and that's the key. There's always risk. If we try to find a place where you're not going to offend me, I mean, any partnership. Any family, we all know that. To be together means to live at the risk of hurting someone. Right? Not listening properly. Not engaging the best way. Especially in a place like, like, like the, the, the church. It is to know, it is a risk. To be a community is a risk. I love how you started because that's exactly it. But if I turn, if I am with you, and if I love you, the I know that you're concerned. The fact that you said it at the risk of, which means that you are concerned with others. So it is more like what you want to pay attention to. It's all about communication too. So it can be either one thing or the other, but I, she's concerned. So that's what I'm going to. So then you can ask me uh, the most horrendous questions. I remember when I was learning about uh, uh, queer folks, I had this one friend who had to stay in the same room with him, and he was, he was gay, and I was scared to death. Oh, my goodness. He was going to attack me or something. That's how I grew up. And, I, and I, it was a, a, a Presbyterian minister who was in, in Geneva. Now is a precious friend, Douglas Chiu. And I said, and he said, why are you so afraid? I said, now can I open my heart to you? Can we have, we, we, had, we were in, <clears throat> with the World Council of Church who would spend the whole week together. I said, can I ask you all of the outrageous questions? Because I don't know, I don't have language. 
And I am at a place, and that's the heart of what I'm answering. I am at a place where you were like thousand miles ahead of me. And you might not have the patience to pick me up. But he was. And he changed my life. It's about knowing that everyone is at a different place. Some people will be more ready for it. Some people won't. But as long as there is a, a desire, for me, that's the criteria. As long as there is a desire to learn, a true desire to be broken, a true desire to be converted, and to know that in this, <clears throat> it's more about changing myself than changing Margaret. And if you are in the church trying to change Margaret, you're going to be miserable. Because Margaret will not be what you want. Change yourself. All we can do, that's what we learn in, 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 in if you do therapy, you learn that. If you do Buddhism, you do that, you learn that. You cannot change what's outside, change what is inside. That's key, that's the rule. Okay, you said something last week that was outrageous. Oh, what do I do with you? I have two ways. I walk away, or I linger with you, or I stay with you, or if I can talk to you, I ask the pastor to talk to you, with me. There are ways around. But that is the work of a community. It is hurtful, and it is difficult, and I would even say it is impossible. If we are walking together, one is here, one is there, one is there, one is right there. And that is a lunatic right there, but he's still here. What can I do? I think it's, it's a way of finding. It's all about the disposition of the heart. If the disposition of the heart is compassion, then I can walk with you. Unless you say that all Latinos should be, <clears throat> be kicked out of the country then I think it's a boundary that I cannot deal with. But if there's not there, or I would say people who have beautiful white hair cannot be in the church. If it's, we are not at this truncate place, then I will have to learn with you and be broken and be transformed and wait. And all of this, my friends, is the work of the Holy Spirit. How much we are open to the Holy Spirit or not. It's all about that. And if I'm open to the work of the Holy Spirit, it will be hard. It will be risky. It will be challenging. It will be hurtful. But yet, it's much better to be with you than be on my own. Yeah, thank you. Yeah, and thank you so much. I, I'm hearing both uh, an invitation, a challenge, uh, one of conversion, yeah. uh, one that I'm feeling bodily because part of me wants to stay here longer. Part of me knows that I think there's youth waiting for me too. Um, <laughs> and, and part of it is saying he's talking too much. Yeah. yeah. He's not going to say that. And I'm just, I think this invitation is, is so challenging, but I, I also want to give you uh, a, a Thanksgiving 
um, from my heart because you also, I think, embodied how to be able to enter that courageous space, um, how, to, how to create that courageous space. Um, so we're so thankful for your time. Can I give, ask us to give us a round of applause, my friends? Thank you for tuning in to this special episode of our anti-racism lecture series titled An Anti-Racism Faith. You heard from our capstone speaker, Reverend Dr. Claudio Carvales, who spoke on anti-racism faith and worship. We'll see you soon, and may the peace of Christ be with you.